everyone. My name is Kat Savage and I'm a professional artist, clinical hypnotherapist and well-being expert working with those in the creative arts sector. In my line of work, I get to meet some amazing, colourful people from actors to artists, people who live their lives by their own rules, fueled by passion and determination to bring their unique talents into the world. I wanted to discover what it took for people to leave the usual nine to five and hop on a dream, to capture their bravest moments and share these meaningful conversations with you so that together we can explore the ideas, emotions and moments that could potentially change our lives too. So let's keep talking, have some fun and enjoy the show. This week on the show, we speak to founder of Make Work Play, Lucy Taylor. Lucy is a facilitator, systemic coach, constellation mapper, and designer of immersive learning experiences. She is a passionate believer that things always go better when we play, and specialises in helping people to use creative practice to find their flow and work together better. Before setting up Make Work Play, Lucy worked variously as a behaviour change consultant, a collaborator with On Your Feet, as part of the story team at Greenpeace International, and as a strategy director for communications consultancy, Eat Big Fish. But realising that nothing quite fit her vision for herself, she took the big freelance leap and ended up with the creative job of her dreams, incorporating everything from puppetry to dance. She's a collaborative regular with the ever-creative Dancing Fox team, where together with founders Tommy Crawford and Brian Fitzgerald, they run training sessions for activists on the power of improvisation and story to create a better world for us all. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to the innovative and playful Lucy Taylor. Lucy Taylor from Make Work Play. Welcome to the Brave Moment. Oh, thank you. It's so nice to be here. It's such a privilege. <laughs> so I'm going to take you away from the present and whisk you off into your past, if that's Ooh, okay with exciting. you. Where did you grow up and what special memory do you remember about your childhood? Um, so I grew up in London mm-hmm. and we lived in this flat and there was an old lady who lived in the basement flat called Morgie, who used to have these really fluffy cats and this amazing collection of like breakable objects under one of those glass domes, which I just used to find so magical. And obviously was never allowed to touch any of it. But being kind of swung down the stairs by my mum and maybe my granny. And I've just got this really vivid memory. I must have only been about one and a half. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then we moved to Winchester um, and there, yeah, we lived in this lovely house on a hill with a great big horse chestnut tree in the garden and it had a tyre swing. And I just oh. remember kind of like swinging on this swing and looking up at all these amazing leaves. And yeah, that really stays with me, that memory, this beautiful tree. Oh, I'm there with you on that <laughs> swing right now. Uh, similarly, we had um, uh, a woman who used to babysit us called Nana Allison, who had two fluffy poodles. Um, not, not not fluffy cats, but they were so cute. She used to bring them over when when she babysat us. And, and I think at the time I must have been about three three or four and um and yeah all I can remember is the fur I can still remember that sensation of the fur under my under my hand yeah actually as you're saying that I can remember so this cat was called Sharka and I can remember the feeling <laughs> of Sharka how funny 
I think you need to write that story, Morgie and Sharka. I mean, you've got two great characters right there. Yeah, what a good idea. (laughs) So talking of home, and I always love asking this question, what smell reminds you of home? Mm, I really like this question because I'm such a smell person. Like, I feel like (laughs) smell is one of my primary senses. Um, I think it would be the smell, well, my childhood home, like the smell of my mum's dressing gown. So (laughs) it was kind of like freshly laundered and all like the smell of kind of Nivea body lotion Um, (laughs) and almost like a beachy smell. So we've got a beach hut and the towels at the beach hut always have this smell, which is like sunshine and deliciousness. Do you know what? It's I've never been able to recreate my mum's washing smell. It's one of like my lifetime ambitions. And, and bearing in mind that I'm coming into my middle age now, <laughs> I still can't recreate my mum's washing smell. And sometimes, and I'll admit this to you now, I do go over and I say to my mum, can you wash my top so it has your special oh. smell? And she's like, oh, yeah, of course, darling. That's so <laughs> nice. I love that. Yeah, my washing definitely doesn't smell as nice as my mum's. <laughs> <laughs> So here you are as a child, surrounded by beautiful smells, lovely countryside, lovely family home by the sounds of it. Were you a creative child or did that come to you later in your life? Yeah, I mean, my dad's very musical. So we've always kind of had music in our, I've always had music in my life. And, you know, as I got older, I definitely had a penchant for kind of performing, singing, (laughs) theatre, So yeah, I think I was a creative child and then I think I kind of lost it in my 20s a bit and then my Mm. 30s have been a kind of rediscovery of that creativity and those things that really light me up. Can you remember one of your dad's favourite songs that he used to play? Yeah, well actually he... So that he used to play a lot. So a lot of Simon and Garfunkel, awesome. um, Sounds of Silence. And, you know, that for me, there's a picture of me as a kind of little baby bundle on his legs with him playing the guitar. Um, so that is a really nice memory. But yeah, definitely loads of Simon and Garfunkel. And then we, I actually, when, we were, when I was a teenager, me and my friend, used to get pocket money for being backing singers in his band. (laughs) (laughs) So already being paid to be creative. (laughs) There's a self-fulfilling prophecy in there somewhere. It was a good wheeze. (laughs) So talking about your teenage years, um, what, what academic route did you take? Do you reckon that your, uh, your younger self would have believed that you would end up where you are now? I think my younger self probably would have, but then like my teenage self got a very different idea of what I should be doing. So I wasn't really very academic until GCSEs. And then I, I just surprised everyone by doing way better than people expected. And everyone was like, whoa, what happened? Um, so, and then I ended up doing politics, philosophy and economics at Oxford. And it was this insanely academic degree And I felt like I should do something kind of academic and researchy. And so for about 10 years, I ended up doing these sorts of jobs and being totally miserable, um, Mm. kind of really going against my grain. And then that all changed when I got to my 30s. And I kind of managed to get to a place that feels very comfortable and much more creative. So I, yeah, I was a bit hard on myself, I think, um, and Mm. forgot about that creativity for quite a long time. 
that's, you know, it's such a funny thing, isn't it? Especially at such an impressionable age. I think that we all go through that moment where we question who we are versus who we think we need to be to survive in the world. Mm. And, um, and yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that eventually your uh, creative side won out <laughs> and slowly crept you back to your artistic creative yeah, self. Yeah, me too. So coming back to Oxford, because I know a lot of people will be curious, what was the Oxford experience like? What were your friends like? Did you fall in love? Was, was there stuff going on at Oxford that balanced out that academic route? Yeah, so I had a lovely group of friends, many of which I'm still friends with. Um, and it's quite a like pressure I found it quite a pressure cooker environment. Mm. And I think I had a you know a bit of imposter syndrome going on. Like I didn't feel necessarily like I was clever enough to be there and I felt like I was gonna get found out. So for me it was <laughs> it was a bit um of an anxious time. But then, you know, the place itself is amazing and the nature is beautiful and the things that you get to experience are quite amazing, like the May balls. And um, mm. although I think it gives you a slightly like rarefied sense of what life is actually going to be like. <laughs> I don't think I've been to a ball since I was at university. <laughs> so, what a shame. <laughs> um, yeah. And I did, you know, I had a very lovely boyfriend. That was a very kind of sweet love. You know, I look back now and think, my God, I feel like at 18, 19, you just kind of don't know, you just don't understand what is available to you and the privilege of that experience. And I think, you know, I would absolutely love to go back now and listen to those incredible lectures and mm. have conversations with these incredible dons who are, you know, complete experts in their field. And at the time, you know, it's probably more interested in partying than going to lectures <laughs> <laughs> so I would definitely attend university differently if I were to go now. So when you came out of Oxford and you had to face the real world what was it like getting your first job where did you live who did you live with what was that experience like as you sort of entered the world as an adult? Yeah so I was absolutely desperate to move to London all my friends had gone and become lawyers from university and I was absolutely adamant I didn't want to become a lawyer <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do for about 10 years but I knew it wasn't law or investment banking or management consultancy which were the kind of things that were presented to you as yeah. the options that you could take so <laughs> actually the first job I had was a temp job uh, mm. as a copywriter writing um, product descriptions for a sex toys website <laughs> which I did for about sounds like a dream job actually well, at that point <laughs> it was a very funny kind of anecdote to have at a party and it was I was doing it with three other girls who we had a hilarious time kind of in stitches <laughs> about these weird and wonderful products um, but by the end it was run by a kind of very sexist not very nice man and by the end I just had enough so I had defiantly handed my notice and said I'm not doing this anymore um and then I moved to London and yeah, so I got a job with a, in finance, basically, <laughs> because they had really cool offices and they had free food. <laughs> and I didn't really understand what they did. <laughs> and I had had seven interviews and I'd got this job. So I was like, mm, I've got myself an amazing job. And then it transpired that the job was actually in their call centre. Um, so I was basically all day from 
Bloomberg, this is Lucy. How may I help you in multiple different <laughs> languages? So that was that. But had a wild time. You know, it was brilliant. All So many friends there and parties and, you know, coming into work, having not been to bed until four, which now seems like an unfathomably exhausting thing to do. But, you know, it was great kind of rolling around um, with lots of fun, interesting people working in different worlds. And yeah, it was a brilliant time. <laughs> Living the true London lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. I love it. So when was that point in your life where things started to change, where you started to look at your career pattern and think to yourself, you know what, this isn't working for me anymore. What, what, can you remember that transition or period and what was going through your mind and how were you feeling at the time? Yeah, so I was working, so I, I spent, I quit the finance job and ended up working in research, which which mm. I did find really interesting and it felt rewarding because a lot of it was public sector work, um, looking at cultural projects, museums, libraries, archives, which I found, you know, I felt was important. So I, the work had meaning for me, but it was academic. It was kind of overusing one part of my brain. Um, mm. And then I went to work in government and was running kind of consultations and again the per- the purpose of the work was motivating to me but mm. the culture in which I found myself working was really deadening and I ended up getting quite depressed it felt really institutional mm. it was really hierarchical and although we were doing some great work I didn't feel enlivened mm. in the way that I needed to but you know, there was a certain trepidation for me about kind of quitting and jumping into the unknown. And I mean, my mum's, she's very entrepreneurial and has always uh, worked for herself. And she was kind of, go, just quit and, you know, go and do something else. And my dad was like, no, no, you need a stable job. You can't quit. You know, you'll never get another job. So these kind of two different influences. Um, And then eventually, when the Conservatives came in, they were doing a big cull I was working um, what was then the very Orwellian-sounding Central Office of Information. But they nah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, they did a car and I took redundancy and went travelling, which was oh, wonderful amazing. and freeing. And I went around South America where, you know, lots of my relatives live. So met all these cousins who I'd never met who all looked exactly like me, which wow. was a magical and strange experience. And then was in on an island in Chile and had this epiphany that I really wanted to freelance. And I was in this, pla- this place where the nature just really spoke to me. And I just had this total clarity. And I remember exactly where I was um, overlooking this lake. And I just knew that that was what I needed to do. And then came back, had no money, panicked and took this job at a branding agency that made me feel sick to my stomach. <laughs> oh my but goodness. I did it. We, we've all had those jobs, <laughs> yeah. haven't we? Where we're just like, oh my God, every morning you just wake up and don't want to go. Yeah. So I took it and I did it for six weeks and I was absolutely miserable. And then I quit and I kind of gave myself such a hard time for quitting after six weeks. Um, <laughs> but while I'd been there, this girl had arrived and I was so stressed in this job. I couldn't, I didn't have the kind of bandwidth to really make a friendship with her, but I clocked. I was like, she's a cool chick. And three weeks later, she emailed me to say that she'd been fired. Did mm. I want to meet for a coffee? And I was like, if you, if you know, um, 
this girl, Gina, she's an amazing human. Why anyone would ever, you know, she's just brilliant. Like how she could be ever (laughs) fired is totally beyond me. But we met and had this coffee and kind of licked our wounds about what a kind of traumatic experience it had been. (laughs) And um, she pointed me in the direction of the Do Lectures, which is a festival of ideas that happens in Wales. Fantastic. And I was like, okay, cool, I'll have a look. Um, So I looked and I just went through all of their speakers and I found this guy called Rob Poynton. And he had, with someone called Gary Hirsch in the States, set up a consultancy called On Your Feet, which was a collaboration between improvisational theatre and business. Oh, there you are. (laughs) Yeah, it was cool. And I I bought his book, which was called Everything's an Offer. And you know when something just totally speaks to everything that you're kind of circling around in your mind at that time? Mm. It was like, wow, this is like what I need. So I sent him an email and said, you know, with my CV and said, I'm at a bit of a juncture. I'd love to chat to you or buy you a coffee. And I didn't hear from him. I was like, oh, well. And in the meantime, I'd started doing an improv course and it was just mind blowing to me. It was so joyful. It was crazy, (laughs) creative, like just a beautiful experience. And then one Sunday night I was in my pajamas on my laptop and I'm getting a Skype call from this guy Rob I was like oh my god this is like my work idol I can't talk to him in my pajamas <laughs> oh how things have changed <laughs> haven't they so I made some excuse about my camera not working we had this chat and he's he lives in Spain and he said you know we had loads of weird connections and so he had said I live in Spain but I'm coming to London on this date the only window I've got is a train is a tube trip from Paddington Station to uh, <laughs> London Bridge. Would you like to me? So I was like, yep. <laughs> um, so we met and had this like funny meeting on the tube. And then that was the beginning of something completely different. So I started collaborating with him and he introduced me to some a fabulous woman called Lizzie Palmer, who had also been part of On Your Feet. And that just took me off on an amazing adventure, kind of combining improv, using improv as a way of helping people collaborate and create in an easier, more generous, free-flowing way. And from there, I um, worked with an organisation called Eat Big Fish for a long time, who do challenger branding, which is a brilliant way of distilling the stories that you tell as an organization. And while I was there, a brief came in from Greenpeace and it was titled, um, creating an epic global story. And the boss <laughs> said, does anyone want to write this prose? I was like, literally shot up out of my chair. I was like, yes! <laughs> that doesn't sound like oh, you. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and from there, so that was Tommy, um, Crawford and Brian Fitzgerald who, now run Dancing Fox. Um, Mm. But together, while they were at Greenpeace, we did just the most amazing project, helping Greenpeace reimagine their story. I mean, that's such a such a big beginning and it must have felt so refreshing, so enlivening, so passionate compared to what you'd done up until that point. Yes. It felt and it just felt joyful. It was just Mm. it was so much fun. 
So I want to talk to you, thinking about work being joyful, about your business Make Work Play. I want to know how this part of your life has played into what you do now. And what exactly do you do when you are doing a Make Work Play workshop? And what do you hope to inspire in people when you are working with them? Yeah. After I had my son, you know, I had a period of where I was just kind of totally focusing on motherhood. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking about work and like how I, what would that look like post baby? What I wanted was something that captured what I'd done to date and was something that was bigger than me. So not Lucy Taylor running workshops, but something that I could invite other people into and could be Mm. more of a collaboration. I was a friend said, just write, just start writing and something will pop up. And I, so I started writing about what it was and I ended up writing, um, you know, something like, how can we help people make work play? And then suddenly it was just there on the page. I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to help people make work play because for me, my journey since my twenties, where I was so disconnected from the thing that made my soul come alive Mm. and to finding work that I absolutely love and adore and nourishes me and I hope nourishes the people that I serve in my work Mm. um but it's like if you imagine a Venn diagram of like work and play for me my goal is to make those two things align so that you are doing things that that you love and therefore don't feel like work and that's what I want to help other people do. That's incredible. And considering we spend, you know, 20, 30, sometimes 40 years of our life working, to be able to come into an environment and feel like you're, you're, you have a purpose, to feel like you're actually enjoying what you do. I mean, that's so needed. You know, in, in today's modern society, have you found that people are just lapping up the business that they're they're just coming to almost in the same position that you were in where they're kind of lost they don't really know what their purpose is and do you find that you can help them to to discover that I think there are kind of two camps so I think some people just get it and they're like yeah that's what we need that's what we want and then um I think some people are a bit allergic as grown-ups to the idea of playing <laughs> I, I really do like I think we've you know we work in a way where humans are valued for their productivity and mm. profit and the bottom line of the things that you know in in the old paradigm people care most about and I think that's starting to shift so mm. I think you have organizations that can really see the value of different ways of working and more playful ways of working and more decentralized ways of working but I think it's a slow shift mm. um mm. and I my what I like to do is to work with the willing so the people Mm -hmm. who get it but yeah not everyone gets it and also people are squeamish about you know you say you're going to come and do improv and some people (laughs) are like oh my god get her away from me (laughs) but I generally find so once people once you start a workshop so I've, I've done a lot of work with tech companies recently and you often get a lot of um developers who are more introvert than extrovert and the idea of improv is completely horrifying to them in theory (laughs) and that was a generalization but um once we get into a workshop you see people kind of relaxing opening up and you create this amazing kind of sense of connection and playfulness and yeah creativity Um, and it's really quite magical what can occur in those containers 
and you'll know through the work that we've done with Dancing Fox, things like mm-hmm. doing laughter yoga or doing improv or playing games. It relaxes people and it enables them to bring a different part of themselves. And it, I mean, it totally lets your guard down as well. I think when we go into work, we we go in with a different persona, don't we? We go in with our professional head on and sometimes we forget that we're human, that yeah. we've got laughter inside us and that we go home and play silly games with our children and, and all the rest of it. And being able to marry the two, it must be so wonderful for you to see. I'm, I'm so intrigued. What was, can you remember your first clients can you remember what that felt like to have that first booking and what happened in that workshop yeah so my first workshop as make work play was actually with a friend a friend's business Mm. and I was mega nervous because (laughs) it was a friend and you know the stakes are even higher when it's somebody that you know and so I'd spent ages preparing and then I'd had a terrible night with my then toddler so I was like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? And we got, it was in a hotel in Waterloo and we got, I got there and just suddenly, you know, something kicks in and your the adrenaline kicks in. And we had a really magical session. We did one, I remember one of the ex- we, exercises we did was crap portraits. So we drew rubbish <laughs> pictures of each other where you draw a picture of the person without looking at the page. You draw a picture of the person without le- letting your pen off the page. Um, and that was like joyful and funny. And then, and also storytelling. So a lot of personal storytelling, which is unusual for a lot of people to do in the workplace, because mm. as you said, you kind of bring your professional self to bear and you sometimes leave the personal at home but actually these sessions can be really moving so telling stories on a theme of say you know when things haven't gone quite to plan there's a degree of vulnerability that's required and Mm. when everybody allows themselves to be vulnerable it just helps people connect at a much deeper level and I think the play juxtaposing that with play makes it a lot easier to get into that space because you're feeling relaxed and then you can go to a slightly more serious, more vulnerable place in a way that doesn't feel so daunting. Mm, I think that's a magical description of what you do. And, and like you said earlier, I've had the pleasure of of working with you in a different capacity through your collaboration with Dancing Fox. I'm, I'm really interested in the storytelling aspect and um, It reminds me of of two books which have made such a massive impression on me. One was called The Play Ethic and the author's name has missed my mind today. Pat Kane, I think. Yes, yes. And also The Science of Story by Will Storr. And they were so fantastic. And I had sort of an epiphany reading those those books because they're all about storytelling and how we tell ourselves these stories. And, And obviously through your work with Dancing Fox, the collaborative storytelling element really comes into play Mm. so I want to know from you why do you think our stories our personal stories are so important and what do you see regularly coming up in the play shops that people always want to change Mm. so I think personal stories that are the stuff of life Mm. and they allow others a view into our soul, into our minds, into our inner workings, into our life experience. And Mm. I think personal storytelling creates such connection Mm. and helps us become more empathetic beings, Mm. which I think in a time where there's so much division, 
across so many lines, you know, this is just vital work to yeah. weave those stories of connection. And I think linked to that, so the second part of your question, you know, what comes up, this sense of disconnection and the need mm. for connection, I would say, is a massive theme that comes up across loads of different projects that we do from climate change to food to you know women's rights I think connection is to ourselves to each other to the planet is a huge theme and then I think the other one that off you know comes up again and again and again and again is this monster of inertia so Mm. how do we activate ourselves and hold space for others to activate so I think like one of the things I've learned in my work is you can't force you can't force change Mm. you can hold space for change you can nurture change you can like present a path to change but you know only we as individuals can initiate change when we're ready so it's like how do you create the soil the fertile soil in which those you know, individuals can take those first steps of change and, you know, inspire other individuals to do the same. And I think that's where stories are so powerful because Mm. stories help us reimagine what's possible. Just hearing you say that, and as you're saying it, I'm visualising like times before our time where we used to sit around a campfire and tell each other stories. Mm. And that's how our ancestors would convey the world to us, uh, and, and protect us from what was to come and what to expect and all of those things. Yeah. And you're right, that that disconnection from the humanity behind what we're doing to the actual work yeah. that we're doing, to install that humanity into the work, is it's just incredible and, and so vital yeah. uh, as your as your business, you know, suggests. That's yeah. why you're successful at what you do. Can I, can I just build on what you just said? Absolutely. Go for it. Two examples came to me of that, the like importance of oral storytelling and the kind of, I think, craving as human beings that we have for that. One is in that house that I described with the tree. Um, we had these next door neighbours who had lived in Africa. And I remember sitting on the sofa with my feet tucked under the dad's legs. He was called David. And just like <laughs> listening enraptured to these stories he was telling about the wildlife in Africa and just you know, absolutely mesmerised by these stories. And then being at an Oxford ball and they'd, there were these oral storytellers there who were just wandering around telling stories and just feeling my whole being light up listening to these stories like an excited kid. Um, <laughs> and then again, being at uh, Schumacher College in Devon and having an afternoon with Martin Shaw and the same thing, like some kind of ancestral like in my bones style longing for these stories. Oh, that resonates with me so, so strongly. Mm. How does your work inspire your everyday life? What do you take from it? What do you learn from it that you transfer into your family environment to your friend environment? Yeah, so I think there's two parts to this. So with my kind of make work, play work, that is underpinned by improvisational theatre and improv as a model for living. So you can simplify the practice of Im- practices of improv into six words. So one is let go, notice more, and use everything. Mm-hmm. And I know that in my life, when I live by those principles, life is better. It's less. Con- I'm less controlling. Um, I am more present. I am 
you know, I, I kind of join the dance of life more. And when I'm not following those rules, I get stuck in my head. I like disconnect a bit from what's going on around and perhaps just like pursue my plan. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I know that I just live more easily when I work in that way. Mm. And then I think my work with Dancing Fox, that's really, I think that's really changed me as a person. So Brian Fitzgerald, who I know has been on your podcast too, (laughs) he is an amazing storyteller. And if you, you know, if you sit with Brian for long enough over a few glasses of red wine, the stories kind of come rolling out about incredible feats of activism (laughs) and bravery and hot air ballooning and um you know trespassing onto nuclear test sites and you're like wow so my work with them has really like challenged me to step out of my comfort zone and like activate myself for causes that I care about and you know become an activist which I wasn't Mm. you know 10 even five years ago you know I was working I was working in social change but I wasn't necessarily an activist in my own life and I feel that those the work that's really kind of infected the way that I live in a in a great way and a way that can be scary sometimes. I want to talk to you a bit about some of the highlights of your work because I'm so curious and so inspired by by all that you do. What do you consider to be one of your biggest accomplishments either in your life or through your work? So I think the projects that we did at Greenpeace was definitely one, if not the top projects piece mm. of work that I've done. Um, I think for me, it just pushed, it, it pushed me to do things that I'd never done before. It pushed me into a space that I probably didn't think I could occupy. Um, Mm. And Testament, you know, Brian is a very generous mentor. And I think he, you know, was so positively reinforcing of the space that I helped them create through the workshops that we ran. And Tommy is always pushing, (laughs) pushing the edge. And sometimes I'm like, stop pushing me. And then actually I'm always like, okay, yeah, that was good. (laughs) So um, the first workshop we ran was in Brazil. Wow. And we were in this room and there was, I just remember how this epic thunderstorm, like, and mm-hmm. kind of biblical rain and then suddenly it cleared and we wanted to end on a high and Tommy said like sing sing something Lucy I was like oh, no I'm, I'm working I can't <laughs> sing in a workshop and we did and it was beautiful and you know really magical experience and sometimes they're just small things like when just pushing pushing my edges of what I think is possible so <laughs> there, there's uh, something called the nap ministry which is about rest as um, reparation set up by some African-American women in the States. And I think this idea is really important as a way of challenging the capitalist system that we live in. Talk to us about what that means, because I'm hearing the word nap in industry and I'm thinking, what is happening? <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of like, how do we create space for us as human beings who have needs mm. and need to rest and need to replenish ourselves and are not kind of mechanized units of productivity and Mm. how do we create softness in the way that we work so sorry this might seem really like a random train of thought but (laughs) I I I feel like the working world is organized along straight lines like we try Mm. and give it right angles 
and order and put it into grids. And life is not like that. And human beings are not like that. And I, you know, when I work in real life workshops, I work in circles, like we sit in circle. And it's like, how do we bring softness and and curves and fluidity to the way that we work so that we can exist Mm -hmm. as soft human beings and bring our vulnerability to those spaces and one of the things I did in a workshop a couple of years ago was I invited people to have a sleep to have a rest (laughs) and it was beautiful and then a colleague of mine did the same and thought it was a nice idea and took the idea into a space of 200 people and they had a collective nap and, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend. I was really ill. But he said that the quality of ideas that came back after this collective sleep were really magical. So it's times when I've found an idea that I, you know, that excited me, but scared me to put into, you know, <laughs> these more formal settings and run with it because the results are always really magical. And I think it's about, often it's about giving people permission to do different things. Like people think, Mm. oh no, these, you know, sleep isn't compatible with work and, or play isn't compatible with work. But once you model it and once you give people permission, people love it Mm. and are craving it actually. And I I believe probably now more than than ever, especially as we're sort of reevaluating what work means to us coming out of this crazy Mm. year, Um, obviously this podcast is called the brave moment podcast so I want to know what do you consider to be one of your bravest moments be that emotionally physically or spiritually and how did your values as a person change as a result well I think I've spoken about one you know taking that leap from like regular nine to five into the land of self-employment and just the wild journey that followed Mm. and moving away from doing what I should do to Mm. moving towards the things that lit me up and the things that I felt curious about. So being driven by my curiosity rather than my sense of duty or obligation. Mm. Um, And then I think the other big brave that felt brave was to leave a relationship that was really not healthy and become a solo parent um, that was scary and that was definitely the bravest thing that I've done and I think I think I've I think I've come to like really appreciate my own strength mm. in a way that I haven't didn't before because it you know it's not always easy and yet I've surprised myself with my ability to kind of stand strong Mm. even when everything else has been a bit crazy around the edges, which I think actually mirrors my work life, that sense of having, of trusting and having faith and yeah, letting go, I think is the best way of articulating that. Mm. It's really interesting that you should say um, about moving away from a, a relationship that no longer served you. It's been a theme that's come up for a couple of women in the podcast before this one, I'm referencing Steph Hill and also Kim Rowell, if listeners, if you want to go back and listen to their their incredible stories. These in, these beautiful and powerful women to to move away from a relationship that that no longer served you or the person involved and to stand on your own two feet. And I, I, I think this does um, really apply to women in, in the workplace, especially because 
that emotional disconnect whilst also trying to raise a child, whilst also still trying to to work, mm. it's just such a big moment in in your life. And, you know, all hands up to you and bowing down because <laughs> sometimes it can it can make or break you as a person. And to realize, to be self-aware of that strength, that is a massively brave thing to to be able to do and to be able to to use and focus and bring to the table as, you know, as your life goes forward. So thank you for sharing that. Aww. I think a lot of a lot of women especially will resonate with with that. Thank you. And I mean just what you said about it will you know, can break you. I think it did break me. And mm. but then from that place of kind of being crumbled, you build yourself back up and, you know, you're a bit more cracked, but stronger. I definitely feel stronger having gone through that experience. So as we're talking a little bit about emotional uh, vulnerability and emotional strength. How do you look after your mental health now, especially with some of the subject matters that you might be exposed to through your work? Is there anything that you have to do to sort of mentally, um, like, how can I put this, uh, decompost what you're what you're taking home? Mm-hmm. And, and what sort of personal rituals do you have in place just to keep your mental health in check? Yeah, so I do, like, being out in nature is really important for me making sure I walk and actually in lockdown I got really ritualistic about my walk and just did the same walk every morning up (laughs) this hill around a hill fort where there's um a labyrinth so I just used to walk the labyrinth every day and that I found Mm. really a really deep experience somehow Mm. going really deep into the same into one place And I love witnessing the seasons change. I find that very grounding. And more recently, like starting to garden and volunteering at a (laughs) community allotment, I find just having my hands in the soil to be very settling. Cold water swimming. Mm, So when I lived... That comes up a lot. (laughs) (laughs) When I lived in London, I used to go to the Serpentine about three times a week throughout the year. And that really was my mental health toolkit it's Mm. partly the well the connection to nature the endorphins that it gives the kind of fabulous community that exists around these places and you know you finish a swim and suddenly everything's hilarious (laughs) you sit there and shiver for half an hour over a cup of tea and then shiver off on your bike to work um and then I do qigong which I find really wonderful meditative I do quite a lot of shamanic journeying and actually more time alone I used to mm. think I was a real extrovert and I've realized through lockdown that I actually need an, a lot more alone time than I realize it's it's really interesting and, and I was talking to uh, another guest about the introvert extrovert conundrum because you can be an introvert uh, 90% of the time. And that common misconception that you're an extrovert comes from that 10% that you're in other people's company and holding space. Mm. So people just naturally believe that you're this extrovert character when really you're more introvert, you're more thinking, deep feeling, and you need that space, don't you, to to re-energize so that yeah. you can be there and show up to be the extrovert character that people expect. Yeah, yeah. And I've definitely not created that sort of space myself until very recently. 
I'm glad to hear you have. <laughs> <laughs> so what advice would you give to others about starting their own career, uh, their own business, and, and also balancing that work and home life situation? So starting careers, I would say, if you feel like you don't want to do it, keep looking. Because <laughs> 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 I think, you know, when you're starting out, it's difficult because some things are presented to you really loudly and those might not be the right things. So <laughs> for me, the way I kind of widened my sense of what was possible and what was available was just um, following my curiosity and doing loads of different things. Like I had this period when I quit the nine to five and before anything else took off where I just did everything that I was interested in. I went and volunteered as a Alexander Technique guinea pig. I started swimming in the serpentine. I um, did an improv course. I volunteered on a theatre production called the Yumi Bum Bum Train. I just did all these things <laughs> that felt completely random and totally not worky. And actually, they ended up weaving themselves into this job that I would never have imagined was possible when I was <laughs> 22 and leaving university. So following your curiosity and your joy would be my primary piece of advice. For me, it's been about feeling my way into what's possible. So whereas I used to just say yes to loads of stuff and somehow make it work, that's not possible for me anymore. So, mm. and I've, you know, I've made some mistakes. I've had periods where I've really committed to too much and the wheels have fallen off and, and now I've got a much more felt sense of what is manageable um, mm. and also really listening to my gut about things. Like when, my gut, when I've got an icky feeling in my gut, I've got much better at saying no to things mm. um, and, yeah, just really trying to listen to my instincts. I trained as a constellations facilitator and that's <laughs> an embodied way of understanding systems and it's really good for decision-making. So often if I have decisions to make, um, I put each decision on a piece of paper and I stand on the different bits of paper. <laughs> um, Mary Poppins style, yeah, yeah. get into the map. <laughs> yeah. And that I find, you know, your body knows, your body knows what you need to do and what you don't need to do. So it's like tuning into my body and um, heeding that wisdom. Mic drop moment there. <laughs> <laughs> so... I want to ask, because we've, we've talked a little bit about joy and passion and play and curiosity. We live now in a, in a culture where we are exposed to a lot of fantasy films, a lot of magic in films, especially when Harry Potter came along. It seems to have been a, a, an ongoing train of, of media since that point of magic and fantasy. But what do you believe to be magic in real life? I mean, I think when you follow your joy, that is where mm -hmm. the magic lies. And when you get out of your head and into the world, you know, nature speaks to us. Often, if I have a question that I'm wrestling with, I just go out and I hold it and hold it lightly and just be present with nature. And often the answer comes back to me, you know. Um, and I think, you know, the way we can interact with nature is magic if we choose to see it and choose to open ourselves to it. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, when you're open, the beautiful serendipity that life offers us presents itself to, to you. Oh, I love that. You're so articulate at explaining <laughs> your, your imagination. It's brilliant. Oh, thank you. So 
I've got a couple more questions before I put you into your final quick fire question round mm. and we let you get on with your brilliant day. If you were to meet your 100 year old self, what advice would she give you about going forward from this point? <laughs> so I was on this amazing call yesterday where somebody played, uh, it was called the fuck that meditation. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> and it was just like, just think about all your irritations and then say, fuck that. <laughs> so I'm thinking maybe my hundred year old self would just say, fuck that. Like, don't sweat the small stuff um, and just trust, like trust the process and that it will work out. Um, I think is what she would say. She sounds like a sassy individual. And I really, really love the fuck it method as well. There's loads of books on the fuck it method, isn't there? (laughs) And it really does work. As soon as you give yourself that that permission to just let it go, as you rightly said before in the podcast, that's it. There's there's a whole realm of freedom of thought and feeling and things to do in the world, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's so energizing. What do you hope people will say about you in the future? How would you like to be remembered when you no longer walk on the planet? Mm, Wow. I would like people to say that I was open-hearted, that I was playful. And in terms of like what I hopefully will have like done by then is kind of helped, helped build a movement towards more joyful work. Delicious. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got one final question for you before your quick fire. If you could send a sign from the beyond, such as, you know, finding a white feather or something, what would it be? And how would your friends know that it was you? It would be some like mischievous, serendipitous meeting. (laughs) That connection with someone completely random that they would never have thought of, but sends them off on a different path. (laughs) Right, Lucy Taylor, are you ready for your quick fire question round? Yes. Okay, here we go. (sighs) Favourite book that inspired you and why? So I've already spoke about it actually, Everything's an Offer by Rob Poynton. (laughs) Just totally changed my approach to work and life. Favourite film? Three Men and a Baby. (laughs) (laughs) That cheeky monkey on your shoulder is laughing right now, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thing you could rescue from your home if you had to. It sounds really weird, but I've got this really tiny, this wooden spoon with a really tiny head and I just love it. It's like my favourite kitchen implement and my Japanese chopper. Oh, nice. Um, what do you cherish in life as we speak? My boy, my little boy. Oh, cute. He's so cute. Weird thing about you. Like making people dance on Zoom meetings. <laughs> that is pretty weird. <laughs> Pet peeve. Uh, drivers who are not generous with letting people out. Yes. As someone who lives in Cornwall, I can utterly agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> and people that don't indicate another thing that I really, really don't like in this world. Favourite thing you like about yourself? Um, my new fringe. Oh, I need to see a picture <laughs> of that. You must send it to me later. Um Least favourite thing you would like to change? I think when I'm like tired or stressed, I get rigid. Rigid? <laughs> yeah. And like Sounds painful. A bit like fixed <laughs> in my ideas. My, th- my thinking gets rigid and I really don't like it when I'm in that zone. What does your inner child look like and what is her favourite thing to do? 
So she's got a fringe. She's in a swimming costume <laughs> with a bit of a pot belly. And her favourite thing is to swim around underwater and pretending she's a mermaid. <laughs> Mine would get on so well with yours, I tell you that for nothing. <laughs> Best piece of advice you've ever received? I think it might have been yesterday, actually. And I was on this call and somebody presented this model for like understanding what lies beneath the things you find really annoying. Ooh. And it was just so simple and so elegant. It's blown my mind and I haven't stopped thinking about it since. I was awake about four o'clock this morning thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) What tip could you give to other people to try and think about that? So thinking about the thing, so it's like a, it's a cycle. So there's four bits. So what's the thing that really annoys you? What's the positive opposite of that thing? (laughs) So like crap communication would be open communication. Mm. And then what happens if you have too much open communication would be oversharing. And then what's the positive opposite of oversharing? (laughs) You end up with a challenge and a core quality that you value. So what's the thing that you need to work on? And it's just a way of um, not getting fixated on the behavior of the other person, but looking within yourself. Oh, I love it. Honestly, so good. You can take one of your heroes out to dinner. Who is it and where would you take them? So one of them is a guy called Bernard de Coven, who wrote something called The Playful Path. And Mm. I really love his work and I wish I could have met him. So I would take him, I'd take him to the beach. We'd have a picnic (laughs) on the beach. Um, Marshall Rosenberg, who wrote, who pioneered nonviolent communication. And he, he, so there's lots of videos of him doing lectures and he uses puppets as a way of um, embodying two different voices within ourselves. So the jackal is this kind of critical, you should do this, you must do this. That's the kind of violent voice. And then the giraffe is the kind, listening, um, non-judgmental part of ourselves. And I just love the fact he brings puppets in and I think his work is completely transformational um where would I take him there's an amazing restaurant in West Mersey called the company shed (laughs) and you take all of your things apart from fish so you have to take knives forks plates mayonnaise (laughs) wine and then they give you a tip actually maybe they provide the cutlery and plates but you take everything else apart from fish but you have this magical fish feast yeah If you were to be reincarnated, what three memories would you like to take from this life? Probably the tree one I told you about at the beginning. Mm. Um, I've got this beautiful memory of waking up with my son in my bed when he was about six months old and he was just beaming up at me, this (laughs) just smile of total like love, joy, innocence, like it was so magical. (laughs) Um, And then probably another one of Theo, there's a little stream near where we used to live and him wading through the stream like a little three-year-old intrepid explorer (laughs) and the light was lovely and it was beautiful. Song you absolutely must sing along to in the car. Oh, Kat, there are so many. (laughs) (laughs) What was the last one then? (laughs) Uh, It was some Fleetwood Mac. Oh, good choice. I can't remember the specific, but just the whole album. Last meal on earth. 
banana pancakes. Oh, nice. With Jack Johnson singing about banana pancakes in the background. <laughs> and finally, if there was a zombie apocalypse, what would you use as a weapon and where would you hide? I would use hugs as a weapon. Oh, love it. <laughs> <laughs> and I would hide in a river. Nice, because I don't think they can swim. So that's no. very, very thoughtful well done yeah well done lucy taylor you've survived your quickfire question round here is your solitary clap (laughs) so i have one final question for you before i let you get on with your busy busy day what advice would you like to give to the world right now as we come out of this pandemic and we're all sort of tentatively poking our heads above the sand what advice would you like to give to us all going forward Mm, like stay slow (laughs) and do what lights you up Oh, I love that. (laughs) I want that as a slogan tattooed on my ankle. (laughs) Thank you so much, Lucy, for coming on the show today. And I I do know how precious your time is. So it really does mean a lot to us here at the Brave Moment. No, thank you. It's been such a delight talking to you. Um, So thank you for having me. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Um, Before you go, if there's anyone listening that wants to get in contact with you about your work, where can they find you and what are your social handles? Yeah, so I am at make underscore work underscore play and also at Lucy Miranda T on Insta. Um, Mm -hmm. You can drop me an email at lucy at makeworkplay.co.uk. Fantastic. Have a wonderful day, Lucy. And thank you once again for coming on the show. Oh, you too. Have a lovely, lovely day. And thank you. Let go. Notice more and use everything. I love Lucy's improvisational mantra. It's so simple and yet how often do we miss these things? When we widen our senses and begin to infuse the microscopic focal point of our lives with natural surroundings and imagination, suddenly we can see an entire landscape where once there was just a lens. We are often led to believe that we are limited until sadly it becomes our reality and our natural choice. Limited to one job, to one way of living, to one house, one relationship, even one haircut. But as Lucy shows us with her new fringe in tow, it can all change when you let curiosity, joy and your body guide you. When you widen your sense of what's possible, you expand your capabilities to match your new potential. In the same way that when you enter a supermarket, you have a list in mind of what you need, the universe has a multitude of different aisles for you to walk down. Maybe you go into the supermarket thinking, I must get a job in politics and a house and a family and a Volvo estate. So you just go to the aisles that you're focused on and don't bother looking at any others. But just as there are aisles for jobs in politics, there are aisles right next door reading creative artist banjo player, bilinguist, astronomer. All possibilities exist in the field of potentialities, of potential yous. When you start to see and believe that the supermarket is bigger than you think, suddenly you get to run down aisle six and pick up 10 lessons in life drawing or down aisle two for a different car or maybe hang out at the salad bar and serve yourself up a nice Italian if you know what I'm saying. The supermarket universe of you is abundant if you just look around the corner once in a while and grab a trolley instead of a handbasket. 
And it doesn't judge if you fill it right to the brim. As Lucy found out when she took up improv, went travelling, changed her job from government to freelance, and as she has very successfully proven, her supermarket universe was only too happy to oblige her with the gifts she decided to give to herself. She followed her joy and ended up with a patchwork of all her favourite activities in a unique job that she created from her own colourful imagination. As she says, when you give people permission to model what you do, you can change whole worlds, from how people work to how they remember to play to entire environments. And when we play, we create. And when we create, we believe in magic and imagination once more. Do what lights you up, Lucy says. Listen to your body, your gut instinct. And if what is in front of you doesn't make you happy, keep looking. Remember how vast the field of potential reaches and try not to let fear win out. Do what you must, of course, but know when the time comes that you must carry your journey forward to the correct destination. I do a simple thing called asking my heart. When I'm unsure of something, I close my eyes and I ask my heart what it truly feels about the situation. I ask myself, will this make me truly happy? Is this worth my life's precious time? And does it serve or sabotage my soul journey? And finally, does it serve a purpose to others? By the time I've answered these questions in my heart, I know my true answer. Heart asking has simple answers. Usually one word answers, and if you physically whisper them to yourself, you can feel the emotion rising in your throat. There have been times in my life where my mind would justify this or that, and I'd end up a little bit like Lucy, dreading or staying in some jobs or circumstances longer than I should have, because I talked myself into them with my mind. (laughs) But when you ask with your heart you know in seconds whether yes or no or not much else what you have to do. Your body is always your guide. Do what lights you up and waste not on anything unworthy of your heart's fire. As creatives and potential creatives, if you're new to the show, try not to let others put your ideas into a box as inevitably they will try and shut the lid. Instead, Let your ideas break into new ones. Explode through the idea of lids and boxes everywhere and zip round in circles with smooth curves and glittering edges and remind others of their limitless potential. Show them a new way to think, create and live. Be brave, have faith and remember that you can let go. Sometimes a little less control and a little more faith can lead to dazzling new opportunities. And maybe... Just maybe try saying fuck it once in a while. Those two little words have the potential to change your entire life. Believe me. (laughs) Finally, reconnect. Reconnect with what has been missing or what has been lost. Find others to create with. Find others with the same mindset as you who can help to elevate your journey and support you. When you surround yourself with others on a similar journey, it doesn't seem so scary anymore to step out by yourself. Get yourself some good role models, people that inspire you, that pull you up into their sphere and make you feel like you have to bring newer and bigger ideas to the table in order to run with the pack. 
Be brave enough to reach out to those who have made that kind of impact on you. Who knows? Maybe you'll be sat on a tube train with them one day as they hand you bright opportunities to help you chase your dream. Connection is everything, my friends, and everything is connected. As Pam Grout once said, I have to jettison every sorrow, every terror, every misconception, every lie that stands between my conscious mind and what I know in my heart to be true. I have expanded my reality from a string of solid facts as narrow, strong and cold as a razor's edge to a wild chaos of possibility. If we take care of one another and go the extra mile to appreciate and play together, we all gain. Each one of us is lifted up. The real joy comes from tackling the journey together, from raising our voices in one mighty, unified Next week on the show, we speak to eco-artist Sophie Wright about living in a van, collaborating with nature and connecting to the ocean through her wonderful pieces of bespoke beach foraged art. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. If you have a spare moment now, please like, subscribe and tell me your thoughts in a review on Apple Podcasts, which will really help other people like yourself to find the show. Of course, you can also share the show with your friends by following us at the Brave Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube or on Twitter at Moment Brave or just follow the link tree on all of our social media platforms. It's been so wonderful to have you all here with me again. Please get in touch with your own stories and remember, your brave moment starts now.